0: Now, before we get going, I should probably acknowledge that this probably isn't anyone's favorite chapter in the Bible. Most of us struggle our way through the biblical genealogies. I understand that. The names are hard to pronounce, and the people seem very distant from our time and our present day concerns. However, before you skip over them, you might want to remember what the Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. He said, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, of course, when he said all Scripture, the New Testament hadn't even been completed yet. So whatever he means by all Scripture, it certainly includes Genesis chapter 10. But to help you get there, to help you believe that this is profitable and breathed out by God and for you, Let me just warm you up a little bit with some encouragement related to these genealogies because this won't be the last one that we meet. Colin Smith wrote an article a little while back over at Unlocking the Bible called Five Reasons We Should Love the Genealogies of the Bible. Let me me give you the highlights. He says, first of all, that we should love genealogies because Bible genealogies show that God cares about history. He says there are some that claim the Bible doesn't need to be historically true. They claim that we can live with hope in the message whether or not it is actually true. This way of thinking is dangerous and reduces the Bible to be a take-it-or-leave-it motivational book with fanciful myths or nice thoughts genealogies document actual history and illustrate that the Bible is historically rooted and our faith is not in vain. Close quote. I agree with that. If the Bible was trying to present itself as some sort of proverbial myth, right? a story with a, you know, a hidden or underlying meaning, then it wouldn't have genealogies. Whatever else the genealogies mean, they mean that this isn't just story. Of course it is a story. But it's also history. So it it can have a, a real actual meaning and a symbolic meaning. Those things are not, they're, they're not exclusive. The literal does not exclude the symbolic. Okay? So this is a story that means something that we're supposed to read and reflect upon, but know this. It presents itself as a story that actually happened. We know that because it includes genealogies. That's important. Smith goes on to say he we should love genealogies because. Bible genealogies show that God interacts with real people. This means that each person you see mentioned in scripture, he says, was a living, breathing human being just like us. Biblical characters like Adam, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jesus all lived on the earth and breathed the same air that we breathe. Close quote. Again, I agree with that. We read the Bible to learn about God, to learn about us, and to learn about how God saves us through the person and work of Christ. So we need to know that these stories happen to actual people. If the people aren't real, then the message is not applicable, but they are, so it is. Thirdly, Smith says that we should love genealogies because Bible genealogies show that God can use imperfect people for his purposes. Now, I I would add to that that they remind us that having a messed up family tree does not condemn you to a life of unfaithfulness. Everybody in the Bible had a messed up family tree. Fourthly, Smith says that we should love genealogies because Bible genealogies show that God cares about families. I like that. God, God doesn't work with people in general. He works with families in specific. We're going to see that when we get to Genesis 12. But we're seeing it already in terms of the family of Adam and the family of Noah and so on. Lastly, Smith says that we should love genealogies because the genealogy of Jesus means that God understands our situation. Again, I think that's true. I've preached a couple of sermons over the years on the genealogies of of Jesus in Matthew 1 and Luke 3. And it is just so helpful to notice that Jesus was born into a very complicated human family. There is hope in that. I think there's encouragement in that. There is marvel in that. Thanks be to God the Lord cares about and comes to human families. All right, so assuming that I've convinced you now that it's worth your time to work your way through this genealogy, let's begin reading the text at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath and Togarmah, the sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dorinim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. Now, of course, we should just stop here and make sure we understand that the genealogy we're reading will take us past the events of Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel. This table of nations, as it is sometimes called, stretches from the time of Noah all the way to Abraham. So it goes well past the Tower of Babel, which is why it mentions here separate languages. We should also probably point out that there are 70 nations listed in this genealogy, 72 if you use the LXX, the Septuagint version of the story. And that seems to have become a symbolic number for the totality of the nations on the earth. Now, I'm I'm not saying that there are only 72 nations on the earth. I'm just saying that from this story, the number 70 and 72, depending on whether you read it in Hebrew or Greek, became a sort of symbolic way of referring to the totality of humanity. So, for example, Jesus has his inner circle of 12 disciples, which must in some way relate to the 12 tribes of Israel, But then we're told that he had this wider circle of 70, or is it 72 disciples, that he sends out in Luke 10. That has to be a way of saying, symbolically, that the message of Jesus is for the Jews first, but also and ultimately for all the people of the earth. Now, lastly, in terms of this group, most of the names uh, that we just read are associated with peoples to the north and to the west. Of the promised land, which is sort of the frame of reference. We jump back into the text at verse six. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan, the sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabtaka. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dadan. Cush fathered Nimrod, he was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, therefore it is said, like Nimrod a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalneh, in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, rehoboth Ur, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala. That's the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lahabim, Neftuhim, Path-Rusim, Kash luhim from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Arkites, the Sinites, the Arvadites, the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zebuim as far as Laisha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. The people listed in these verses generally lived in the Middle East and then also down south into Africa. The sons of Canaan, listed in verses 15-20, to are the folks that Israel will eventually be called upon to displace from the Promised Land when God brings them up out of Egypt. Now, this is certainly intended to recall the curse of Noah upon Canaan. But again, it will be helpful to note that it isn't as though these future Canaanites will be punished for the sin of their great-great-grandfather. In fact, God delays the exodus and the conquest until the sin of these actual people has reached full maturity. We'll hear about that later. Meaning that at the end of the day, they are punished for who they chose to become. Verse 21 tells the story of Shem, who will become the carrier of the line of promise. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. Now, Eber is mentioned at the head of the list here, and then later when he actually comes up in the line, because it is from him that the family of Abraham will descend. We are being told that Shem contains the line of promise. That is intended to get our attention. Verse 22 goes on now to give the list in order. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hull, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his day the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shileth, Hazar, Maveth, Jerah, Hadorim, Uzal, Digla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Now, Moses doesn't detail here the line of Peleg because it gets its own special genealogy in chapter 11. It is the line of Peleg, son of Eber, that produces the family of Abraham. Verse 32. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Now, I mentioned at the very beginning of this series that chapters 1 to 11 tell us the story of God and the world. And then chapters 12 to 50 tell us the story of God and the family of Abraham. Well, if that is true, and I believe it is, then chapters 10 and 11 function as the hinge and transition between those stories. Out of the world, God picks a family with whom to work so as to bring about his great and glorious plan of redemption. God has a purpose for the peace that he established in chapter 9. The purpose is redemption, and the vehicle is the family of Abraham. We'll talk more about that tomorrow. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into of the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting a mission project that is very close to my heart. The Letha Daycare Outreach Project is a church-based educational program designed to teach literacy, support low-income families, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with boys and girls in rural South Africa. I've seen this project with my own eyes. I have shaken the hands of parents whose families have been helped. I have heard the songs and Bible verses out of the mouths of some of these dear children as they have been taught and helped to put their trust in the Lord. And nothing would be more gratifying to me than for you to show your appreciation for Into the Word by investing in these little ones. You can do that in one of two ways. You can give through the Into the Word app or by visiting the Into the Word website at IntoTheWord.ca. Just click on the Give tab and you'll find giving options for both Canadian and American listeners. This is a registered project with ABWE Canada and ABWE USA. So tax receipts are available to all eligible donors. Just identify where you're listening from and click on the fund button and select Letha Daycare Outreach. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your Word